All right, turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If you are new with us, we are in this brand new series that we started three weeks ago entitled Satisfied. And what we mean by satisfied is living in the fullness of Jesus Christ. That we are all looking to be satisfied and we are looking for that satisfaction in someone or something. One of those two things. And if you search for that long enough, what you begin to realize is the thing that you thought would bring you satisfaction does not measure up. Overpromise, underdeliver. Don't you hate that? You hate when that happens to you? And if and that's also true of our lives that when we're looking to someone or something other than Jesus, the result will always be a lack of satisfaction. And so we're looking at this book of Colossians that was written to this church at Colossae some 2,000 years ago where Jesus is lifted up as supreme, as sufficient for everything that we need, including our salvation, but also how we can live a life that experiences the satisfaction that can be found in him. And so that's what we've been doing in this series. And so this morning is no different. We're going to look at three verses, 21 through 23. But I want to start in verse 15. I want to start where we started last week. And so if you weren't here last week, or this is your first time, man, I encourage you to go to our website, SalemChapel.org. You can watch every message on your portable device or on your computer or whatever, whatever you do, you can do that. I encourage you to do that because it's going to set up, this first chapter is foundational to where we are headed in order to understand that our satisfaction can truly be found in Jesus Christ. But I want to start in verse 15 because what we're going to look at today is connected to what we looked at last week. And so let's start in verse 15. Uh, it says this, he, refresher if you were here last week, who is he? Good job. Excellent job. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, say that phrase with me, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before, say that phrase again, all things, and in him, there it is again, say it with me, all things hold together. And so it's an amazing promise we looked at last week, that in Jesus, all things hold together. All things. Whatever in your life right now seems to be dangling by a thread, in Jesus, he holds all things together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, not some things, but in everything he might be preeminent or first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So now we come to the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Verse 21, and you. So now we're no longer talking about Jesus, now we're talking about you, we're talking about me. In fact, if you write in your Bible, you know I'm a big proponent of that. You ought to write your name above the word you. So for me, obviously. And Johnny, who was once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, who's he? Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, write your name above that, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We're gonna key in on that phrase. The hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has now been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we know that Paul is the one who authored this letter to the church at Colossae some 2,000 years ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here's the title of the message this morning if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do so. Here it is. Shifting or steadfast hope? I want you to think in your mind about your hope what you're putting your hope in, whatever that may be, I want you to think, would you describe your hope as shifting or as steadfast? Because here's the idea that we're gonna pound today as we look at this passage of scripture. It's this idea, it's this principle, it's this reality, that a steadfast hope results in a satisfied heart. That when I am experiencing and when I have a steadfast hope, the result will be is I will have a heart that is experiencing satisfaction. And so I think if we're going to look at this passage of scripture and Paul talks about, uses that phrase, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, then we probably ought to define hope, right? Be a good thing to do. But before I give you the definition that I've come up with that that comes out of this passage of Scripture, principle-wise, I want you to think of your hope. Because in our context, it may be true of you, it's, it's sometimes true of me. When I think about hope, I don't think of certainty, I think of uncertainty, right? Like we use phrases like, well, I hope Johnny... Ends on time today, right? Right? Not, not, not spoken in terms of certainty, uncertainty. Well, I, I hope my spouse does what he or she says that they're going to do. What are you doing? You're not speaking of certain terms. You're speaking of uncertain terms. Man, I, I hope that my boss does this. I hope that this person comes through in this. I hope that the work that they've done manifests itself in this. I mean, we could go on and on and on, right? My point is, is oftentimes we use that word to describe uncertainty rather than certainty. And I was thinking about that this week when when I read this passage of scripture, knowing what we were going to teach about and thinking of, of hope. And I thought to myself, because at the end of the day, I know where I struggle. I know where oftentimes my hope can shift. And I thought, man, when, if I'm this morning thinking of hope in uncertain terms, then it's because I'm placing my hope in something or someone that I believe will fail me, right? So if you, you are thinking of hope in that way, The issue is on where your hope is being placed. And because your hope is being placed on something or someone that you cannot have confidence that the expectation that you have will come to fruition, you view hope and I view hope in uncertain terms. 
But we know this, that when the Bible uses the word hope, it speaks of hope in anything but uncertain terms. There is a certainty to the word hope. And it's the same that is true in this passage of Scripture when Paul uses this word hope. So here's the definition that I, that I came up with for hope. I'm sure there's others that are better, but this is the definition that I came up with, understanding what we're going to look at this morning. Here's a definition of hope. A confident expectation, confident, keyword, confident expectation that God, key person in this definition, that God not you, not me, not something that God will produce a positive outcome for my future. That's hope. Confident expectation. Not uncertain. Confident expectation that God will produce a positive outcome for my future. And so what I want to do this morning, if steadfast hope results in a, or in a satisfied heart, then I want to give you two characteristics of hope that I believe are found in these three verses. And as we look at these two characteristics of a steadfast hope found in these verses, I want you, I want you to think about whatever you're putting your hope in right now, because if it doesn't have these two characteristics in it, then it's not a steadfast hope. It's not. It's a hope that will only produce uncertainty. And so what's the first characteristic? Well, let's look at verses 21 and 22, but before we look at, look at these verses once again and unpack them, let's just, let's just take a moment to pray. Not a, not a long prayer, but let's take a moment to pray. And here's what I want you to pray. Lord, would you show me that you're my hope? That one simple phrase. Let's go to God. God, I pray that as we open up your word, Lord, we say this in this place, when your word is open, when the Bible is open, your mouth is open, Lord, would you show us that you are our hope? And it's a steadfast hope. It's not a shifting hope. God, would you show us that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. Paul says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, let's stop in verse 21 because, because I think this is interesting. So verses 15 through 20, what is Paul doing? He is describing who Jesus is. Remember we said last week that whatever your heart may be vying to worship and wanting to worship, I want you to take that thing and I want you to measure it up to what's found in verses 15 through 20 and say, does this thing, does this person measure up to who Jesus describes himself to be? And the answer for all of us, if we're being honest, would be no way. No one can measure up to who Jesus describes himself to be in verses 15 through 20. So Paul takes all this time to write this beautiful uh, Many people think even a hymn, beautiful hymn of who Jesus is. And so he says, this is Jesus. And now in verse 22, he says, you want to know who you are? And he goes, well, you, Johnny, Beth, whoever your name is, you, this is who you were. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. Alienated means separated. So I was separated from a holy God. Why? Because of my sin. 
I was hostile in mind. I didn't want to have anything to do with God. I didn't want to believe that there's this God out there who, and and I don't want anybody telling me what to do, so I was hostile in mind. I was doing evil deeds. I've said this before. I've never run into anybody that that I had to convince that they're a sinner that was sane. Like, I have no problem admitting, I'm not, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, but we were doing evil deeds. But what was the result of that? The result of that is we were alienated. We were separated from God. So I think it's interesting that what Paul does, he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to lift Jesus high, and then we're going to remind ourselves of who we are apart from Jesus. And then what does he say in verse 22? He says, but he has now, you ought to circle that word now, because if you place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that, verse 21's not you anymore. Praise God for that. And now he is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, and then he describes who you are now. See, here's the first characteristic of a steadfast hope. A steadfast hope is grounded in the gospel. Grounded in the gospel. Like that's where steadfast hope is found. It's only found in that. And so you're sitting here this morning, you're like, well, how do I experience that type of hope? Because there's nobody in this room, I promise you, there's nobody in this room, trust me, nobody in this room that would say, I don't want a steadfast hope. We all want that. We don't want to be left, left just feeling over-promised and under-delivered. No, no, no. We want that steadfast hope. So how or, or why can I have that today? How, why can I experience that today? Why is that a promise that is available to me today? Well, it's found in that one word that's found in verse 22, and it's that word reconciled. We mentioned this in the passage that we looked at last week. We actually read it this morning, verse 20, and through him to reconcile himself. Same word that's found in verse 22. What does reconcile mean? It has the idea of making a payment, but more than that, it's making an exchange. So remember, verse 21, this is who you are apart from Jesus Christ. Verse 22, this is what you've been given in this glorious exchange through Jesus Christ. So let's just take a moment to unpack that. Here I sit, I may sit here today, and I'm hoping that the good that I do outweighs the bad that I do, that there's these cosmic scales in heaven that when I stand before God one day, hopefully the good outweighs the bad that I do. And I'm like, man, if I haven't murdered someone, if I haven't committed adultery with someone, if I'm giving some charities and I, and I, you know, don't swear too much and, and man, I, I, I'm a good person. And I would say, yes, you're a good person when you're comparing yourself to me and me to you. But the reality is, is I don't compare whether I'm good or not horizontally, Because God is perfect and I am sinful. Remember, all of us admit that. In fact, Isaiah says, all of my righteous deeds, all of my good deeds are like a polluted garment before a holy God. Why? Because God is without sin. So what did God do? He sent Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. He put on human flesh. 
And so I'm over here, I'm alienated, I'm hostile in mind, I've, I've done evil deeds, and, and God's over here, and he's perfect, and he's holy, and he's without sin. So what does God do? Because he loves that person over there. He sends Jesus Christ, and what does Jesus Christ do? He puts on human flesh. He's born in a manger. He experiences what it is to grow up. What, why does he do that? Because God knows that someone needs to live a perfect life in order to exchange it for my sinful life. And then what does Jesus do? He dies on the cross, paying the penalty that my sin deserves because Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. And Jesus raises from the dead three days later, making that payment sufficient. And so what happens is, is when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, a glorious exchange takes place. That I'm over here and I'm like, man, what do I have to offer God? I have nothing. Nothing that he would want. Think about it this way. How many of you have made terrible trades in your life? Raise your hand. Terrible trades. I mean, my trades extend all the way. Man, I used to love trading, trading basketball cards in, in particular. I remember I was a fifth grader, man. We used to walk after school to this trading card shop uh, in, in Winter Garden, Florida, just in West Orlando, and we'd go to that trading card shop, and I remember there was this pack of rookie cards that, that had all these rookie I won't go through because I know whenever I mention a sporting illustration, I isolate two-thirds of the room. But nevertheless, stick with me. So I was, I was wanting to trade for this box of, of rookie cards, and, and I had this one rookie card that was a David Robinson rookie card, which you don't need to know anything, just he was a really good player, okay? And, and I remember wanting to, and I was thinking, man, this box has got a whole bunch of rookie cards, and I'm trading for one rookie card. Surely that's a good trade. And this 40-year-old man took advantage of an 11-year-old kid. <laughs> Terrible trade. Terrible trade. Could have been a nice heirloom for... Lily and Lucas, terrible trade. And I've had those trades. This is gonna leave you wondering, but I'm just gonna mention it. You know, we're not gonna have time to get involved in it. I traded a Chevy Tahoe for a Scion one time. <laughs> if you drive a Scion, man, that's nothing wrong with your car, okay? But in comparison to Chevy Tahoe, I made some bad trades. Here's, here's, why. I want you, here's why I said that, because I want you to think of some of, the, some of the trades that you've made that you're like, man, if I could do that again, I would have never done it. Now, now think about this. Now we're going to something much, much greater. Think about the trade from God's side for you and for me. I had nothing to offer God. I was alienated. I was hostile in mind. I have done evil deeds. But God says, no, 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 I want to make that exchange. I want to send Jesus Christ to live and to die and to be risen for you because that's how much I love you. And every person who places their trust in Jesus Christ, that exchange takes place. Romans 5, 8, that in the midst of my sin, that's when God demonstrated his love to me. That's the word reconciled. Why can I have hope today? Why can I have that steadfast hope today? Why? Because of that one word reconciled, because an exchange took place. And what did I receive? Like, what did I receive out of that exchange that didn't make sense to the angels in heaven, I'm sure, that, that wouldn't make sense to any person that would hear it? 
But what did I get out of that glorious love exchange? Well, look at what Paul says. He, he says this hope, this steadfast hope that's grounded in the gospel causes you to be seen by God as what? He describes, he says, first of all, he says, holy. That word holy means separated from sin to God. Now, if I asked you to look at your spouse or to look at your friend right now and, and for them to ask them of you, am I holy? That's not a conversation we want to get into, right? But that holy doesn't mean without sin. I still sin. You still sin. That doesn't excuse me to do that. But, but that, that happens because I, I still am living in my fallen nature. But what it's saying is when Paul says holy, he says, this is how God sees you. He sees me and he says, no, 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 Johnny is one of mine. He's separated from who he was in verse 21. He's now mine. He looks at you if you place your trust in him and he says, that person is mine. They're holy. What else does he describe? He says, he says we're blameless. That word blameless means without blemish. In the New Testament, it's referred to, to refer to Christ, who's that spotless, perfect lamb, Here's what it also can mean, nothing sticks. You have any of those pans in your cupboard? Right? Like you're making eggs and it's like, don't even hardly have to wash the pan. Making pancakes, just have to rinse it out, maybe put a little soap in there, boom. I love those dishes. You ever have one of those pans that loses that? Right, and you're sitting there and you're scrubbing and you got the Brillo pad or whatever else and you're working at it. Here's my thing, time is money, man. When it gets to that point, it goes in the trash. Let me buy another one, right? But that word, blameless, literally has that idea, nothing sticks. That in God's eyes, he sees me through Christ's perfection and Christ's death that was died for me and his resurrection. So in God sees me as someone who is blameless. But then it's described, look at what else it's described at in verse 22. It says above reproach. See, this even goes an extension further than blameless because it means free from accusation. Revelation 12.10 talks about Satan as the accuser of God's children. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You're lying in bed at night, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're overcome with guilt and you have these thoughts that come into your mind that, man, how in the world could God love you? And you start thinking about who you were before Christ and you start to doubt, man, could God really love me even though I did that? Those are not thoughts that are from the Lord. Those are thoughts from the enemy. What do I need to bring myself back to? No, 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 my steadfast hope is rooted in the gospel. He says I'm above reproach. In other words, no one can bring a charge against me before God. Why? Because if you're bringing a charge against me and saying that I am guilty, then you are discounting what Jesus Christ has provided for me. He has reconciled me. But here's the key. It says we're holy. It says we're blameless. It says we're above reproach. But key phrase, before him. Not before me, not before you, before him. So here's the amazing thing. God sees me as what I will be one day in heaven. Because God's not defined by time. I'm far from perfect. Just ask my wife. But God sees me as what I will be. 
And God sees you as who you will be. That's why he sees you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. See, why can I have hope today? Why can I have a confident expectation that God will produce a positive outcome for my future? Because it's rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in what can never be taken away from me. It's rooted in what God did for me. It's rooted in that reality. And hear me, because some of you are like, well, what's the so what to this? Like, how does this help me in my everyday life right now? Because here's what you need to understand. This is foundational for your Christian life. If you don't hear anything as of yet, hear this. That foundational to your Christian life is defining yourself by how God sees you as his child rather than how you or others may define you. Man, do we struggle with this. We allow what others say about us to define us. We compare ourselves to other people, and we use that to define us. We define ourselves by how much praise we get from people or how little praise we get from people. And can I just tell you, as someone who, who struggles with that, as we all do, let me tell you something. That is a hamster wheel that will exhaust you. Because I never can do enough for you to be pleased with me. And you can never do enough to be pleased with me. And I can always find someone who's more accomplished than me or someone who's more talented than me or someone who's more articulate than me or someone who maybe have a, have, have a more more zeros behind their, their paycheck than me or, or has a bigger house than me or, or seems to be more put together than me. And if I'm defining myself by those things, that is going to rob me of the hope that the Lord wants me to experience because steadfast hope is rooted in the gospel. Shifting hope is rooted in someone or some other thing. I love what Paul says. Paul's got this. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, he says this, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. What is Paul saying? Listen, I'm not going to define myself by what you think of me. I'm not going to define myself by what I think of myself. I'm not even going to define myself by my conscience, Let me, which, which, by the way, I don't want to go down this road, but I'm just going to say it. Let your conscience be your guide is a terrible phrase because your conscience can be shaped by whatever circumstances you grew up in. I could grow up thinking singing out of a hymnal is the only way that God loves music, and I can come in here and be so conflicted. Why? Because your conscience is formed by your surroundings. Just a simple illustration. But Paul says, no, no, no. Here's what I trust in. Here's what I define myself. Not by you, not by me, not by my conscience. I define myself by one person and one person only, that the Lord sees me as what? Paul says, holy, blameless, above reproach, before him. No one can take that away from you. No one. And when I define myself that way, hope is the result. Satisfaction is the result. Here's the second characteristic of a steadfast hope. It's found in verse 23. Number two, a steadfast hope is experienced when you are abiding in Jesus. 
And it's rooted, it's grounded in the gospel, but it's experienced when I'm abiding in Jesus. The reason why I say abide is because look at verse 23. It says, if indeed you continue, that word continue literally means to abide, to remain, or stay. Now, you could read verse 23 and say, "Uh uh-oh, it says if. So does that mean my salvation's not secure? Here's what you need to understand. That word if in the Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, has this idea that that this is a characteristic of someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's assuming that this is you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So he says, assuming that you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. See, Paul uses an architectural imagery in this Verse. Do you see it there? He says, not shifting from the gospel. He says, stable, steadfast. It has the idea this phrase would have been used by a house that's built on a firm foundation. And that word shifted literally means earthquake stricken. Because Colossae, this area, was subject to many earthquakes. So when Paul uses this type of terminology, it would have been used as an illustration that would have triggered that they understood the imagery that Paul was trying trying to convey about the security and the steadfastness of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And he says that assuming that we are abiding in the faith, what's the result? It says, or, or, or why is that the case? It says that we're stable. That means grounded or a firm foundation. In other words, here's what happens. That when that beautiful exchange takes place between myself and God, that he just doesn't exchange his righteousness for my unrighteousness. But then he takes me and he sets me on a firm foundation. He sets me on a foundation that is stable, that is grounded, that is firm. And when I'm set on that foundation, then there's that next word, then I am steadfast. See, steadfastness is different than the word stable. Stable refers to the foundation that I've been put upon. Steadfastness is the result of what I experience being put on the foundation. It's the stability of the structure that is put on a firm foundation. So in other words, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as I am abiding in Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about in a moment what that actually looks like, as, I'm, as I am remaining, as I am staying, as I'm not wandering away, the word continue doesn't mean to visit, it means to stay. That as I'm abiding in Jesus Christ and I'm not falling for the other things that overpromise and underdeliver, that what I will experience by being planted on that firm foundation is stability in the midst of instability. There's a picture that will be shown on the screen of a house that has endured an earthquake. And as that picture is shown, I want you to think about your life right now. And I want you to think, if my life could be put on a screen In the imagery of a home, would it look like that? In shambles, broken, unstable. 
Because literally what Paul is saying here is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the characteristics of that, of a changed life, is man, I don't want to leave. I don't want to wander away from that firm foundation. You know, actually I started studying a little bit about what causes a house to collapse in that way in an earthquake. And the reason is, is because every house has a foundation. But when you put a foundation on ground that shifts, what happens when that ground shifts? That foundation shifts, which causes that building to crack or to be torn down. And so one of the things that scientists are doing in earthquake-ridden areas is they are causing houses to be built on a foundation that's above the ground and put on certain pillars that can shift so when the ground shakes, the foundation doesn't. That's the imagery of someone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ and is abiding in Jesus Christ, that when the circumstances in life shift, I understand that my God's not shaken, that my hope's not shaken, that my future's not shaken, that me being holy and blameless and above reproach is not shaken by the circumstances, that I am founded on that. That's where my hope lies. That's where my steadfast hope is grounded, and I experience that as I'm abiding in Jesus. That's literally the imagery here. And what Paul is saying is, is followers of Jesus Christ don't shift, aren't shaken to destruction, when circumstances come in their life that are unforeseen or unwanted, that's the idea. It's not saying we're saved by continuing in the faith, but it's saying we continue in the faith and prove that we are saved. That's the idea. And listen to me, I've been praying for this all week for every one of us in here, because my concern is we live in an area of the country where most people know about Jesus. Oh, yeah, I heard him when I was a kid, yeah. Yep, I remember being, being in a classroom and, and hearing about Jesus. And Oh, yeah, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But it's an intellectual belief. But it's not a, it's not a faith where you understand the exchange that took place. It's not an exchange that has changed your life and is changing your life. And I think so often we're so scared to talk about this because we don't want people to doubt that they are followers of Jesus Christ. But in doing so, we cause some people to think that they are when they shouldn't. And I want you to think about your life, and it's not a matter of living a perfect life, but saying, man, have I experienced change in my life because of Jesus? Because the reality is the same life is a changed life. That there's going to be times in my life, though I don't desire them, I can look at times in my life where I may have wandered a little bit away of the hope that is found in the gospel, but the reality is, is someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ may wander, but they will never leave. They'll never leave. And over and over again, Paul talks about, man, you need to test, you need to examine your heart. 2 Peter 1.10 says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. So what does abiding involve? 
And how do we remain? How do we stay? How do we keep ourselves from wandering? Well, abiding involves three things. It involves the head, it involves our hearts, and it involves our hands. That may sound familiar to some of you because the definition of worship that we gave last, last week, if you remember, is whoever or whatever, I'm giving first place of my head, my heart, and my hands. But the reality is the reason why abiding is the same type of idea is because if I'm abiding, I am worshiping. See, abiding involves my head. What am I, what am I doing with my thoughts? Abiding involves my heart. What am I doing with those emotions, with those feelings? Abiding involves my hands. How am I applying God's word to my life? So here's three things that abiding involves. It involves the head feeding on the word of God. I mean, I can't abide and experience hope. I can't abide if I'm not taking time to get into God's word on a consistent basis. I sound like a broken record, I know, but the reality is, is these principles don't change no matter how often you hear them and don't do them. It follows me, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna feed on the word of God. I'm gonna allow God's word to shape how I think, shape my mind. Man, I'm gonna take my heart and my emotions and I'm gonna commune to God through prayer. I'm gonna understand, man, he's always there. He's always ready to listen. He's always there ready to intervene. He's always there. He's never gonna have a busy signal. He's never gonna say, stop bothering me. Never. But I'm saying, God, I'm in your word, but then I, I'm struggling with my emotions. I'm struggling with fears. I'm struggling with anxieties. Well, well God, let me, let me tell them to you. Let me, let me say them to you out loud so that your Holy Spirit can, can give me that hope, that assurance. What did we say hope was again? A confident expectation that God will produce a positive outcome for my future. God, I need that hope. I need to experience that hope right now. I need that to speak to my emotions. Let me take that to you in prayer. It involves the hands. God, let me take what I'm reading, let me, let me use that time that I'm telling you how I'm feeling and let me apply what your word says to my life so that my life can look different than someone who hasn't accepted that beautiful exchange by God through Jesus Christ. That's abiding. My head, my heart, my hands. And the result will be Steadfast hope. Because a saved life is a changed and changing life that produces a hope-filled life. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. I love how Peter describes the same type of hope that Paul's talking about. He says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope. It's living. See, some of us right now, if we had to characterize our hope, we'd say it's dead. I've lost hope in my marriage. I've lost hope with this child. I've lost hope that God can provide this need. I've lost hope in that. But the reason why is because that hope has been placed in something that is uncertain, not certain. Romans 8 was mentioned earlier where, where Paul says, what shall we say to all of these things? And what he's saying in reference to that is all the things that we have in Jesus Christ 
What shall we say to all these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That's hope. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's hope. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. That's hope. Don't allow your circumstances to rob you of your hope. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a hope that can never be taken away from you. And you need to abide in Jesus to experience that. Stop wandering away. Come back to him. Because it's a living hope. And how do we have that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Look how secure this hope is. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. Nobody can steal it who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What's that talking about? That's talking about that definition of hope we gave, a confident expectation that God will produce a positive outcome for my future. Every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. I just want you to take this moment and examine your heart. Remember what we prayed at the beginning of this message? God, would you show me where my hope is found? And some of us may need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for not abiding in you. Allowing circumstances to convince me that my hope is dead rather than allowing what the gospel says to remind me that my hope is a living hope. not going to experience satisfaction if it's not found in Jesus who gives you that steadfast hope. Listen, you may be here today and you've believed intellectually in Jesus, but that doesn't save you. It requires you to surrender and say, Lord, I'm putting all of my weight in what you have done for me in that glorious exchange. I'm placing my trust in you as my Savior, not in myself. That's what's necessary for salvation. And maybe some of you just need in this moment to truly surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And stop relying on a decision that you made 40 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever, and look and say, man, my life has no change in it whatsoever. Lord, forgive me for believing in you intellectually and not believing in you with my life. 